These are the true stories of farmers, <coughs> conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land. This is Ron Cruz. Today is December 14, 2017, and I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, at the annual meeting of the Domestic Fair Trade Association, where I have the pleasure of interviewing Elizabeth Henderson, pioneering CSA farmer and longtime activist for local and national policies and programs to advance socially and economically just sustainable agriculture, both in the U.S. and abroad. Liz, your many policy accomplishments have included helping shape the landmark Organic Food and Policy Act of 1990, serving early on as a board member of the Northeast Organic Farming Association of New York, and serving as a founding board member of the Agriculture Justice Project. I hope we can cover all of those topics in the next hour, but I'd like to start all of my interviews I'm doing for the Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive by going back to the beginning of your life, all the way back to your childhood. Uh, what got you interested in food and farming, as well as justice and fairness issues? Well, as my father used to say, I was born at a very young age um, to parents who were totally city people. Um, their idea of being in the country was playing tennis. They never gardened. Uh, they didn't even mow the lawn. They hired someone else to do that. Um, but I, they had been very much involved in civil rights and struggles for peace and justice all of their lives and kind of inherited it, I think, in my family. My mother's uncles were involved in the revolution of 1905 in Poland, which was unsuccessful. So when they lost that revolution, they fled and came to the United States. And they were union activists, um, union organizers, and um, just solid unionists. So I was raised by people who were concerned with peace and justice. Um, so my mother helped raise funds. She filled um, Carnegie Hall, no, Madison Square Garden, to raise money in the 30s. Um, for union? For union for, for, Yeah, workers. for union workers. And helped get the first low-income housing in New York City. Wow. So that 1930s, I would have been right at the beginning of the Great Depression when things were really getting right. rough on people. Right. Yeah. And my father, although he was a dress designer and I suppose a very small scale capitalist, he convinced the owners of the factory that produced the dresses that he designed to allow the, their workers to recognize the union that their workers wanted to create. So the Garment Workers Union unionized the factory where my father's dresses were made. Wow, wow. That's really interesting. I can imagine that one of the things that's been of troublesome for you in your, in your life is seeing the sort of deterioration of unionism in the country and all the work that your relatives put into it. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, right. I would think so. But I, I grew up very much aware of those kinds of issues yes. and going to um, public school in the 50s 
where we were taught that there was one true way to understand everything, I knew that there were other ways and got into um, intellectual conflict with some of my teachers. Mm -hmm. For example, our textbook, our American history textbook in the 1950s in Croton-on-Hudson, New York, said, and this is a quote, the darkies were happy down on the old plantation. So for my next book report, I reported on Nat Turner's Slave Rebellion, which made my American history teacher very angry. Wow. So then where did you uh, go to college? Well, before I went to college in high school, I was totally disaffected and my parents wanted to cheer me up. So they sent me to the Putney summer work camp which was located on a beautiful farm in Vermont. And that's where I encountered the country. My assignment was to help the, uh, the farmer um, clean out the dairy barn every morning. And I loved doing that. I, it was a, I had no idea that that existed. And we also did some field work and at the end of the season spent a whole day canning beans for the winter school. But that's how I discovered that there was such a thing as agriculture and people doing it out in the country. Maybe your parents had a sense of it from you or something. That was very wonderful that that happened that way, it seems to me. Well, what I learned about things natural and ecological from my parents was reading Marx, who's very much an ecologist, mm -hmm. and through modern dance, um, Isadora Duncan and her... A uh, very important struggle for women's place in dance and choreography and for the natural in the human body. Mm. So that's how I came to organic agriculture, not the usual path. Definitely not. And then where did you actually uh, go to college? Then? I went to Barnard College. Um, in college, I participated in the civil rights movement but not like many people who went to the South. It seemed to me there was plenty to do right there in New York City. So my main activity was um, working in support of the um, performers who uh, led a struggle against the New York City Theater Producers Association to demand better roles for uh, performers of color. So I walked miles and miles on picket lines with people like James Earl Jones and Ozzie Dee and Ruby Davis and wow. Cicely Tyson. Um, so that was wow. successful. Yes. We actually won those struggles and they got much better roles. And then you had an academic career for a while before you moved towards farming, right? Well, I was a good student. And my high school sweetheart was a, a very brilliant um, historian. He knew he was going to be an historian from the age of eight. He wrote his first history of, of the United States when he was eight. And for him, uh, an academic career really made sense. And I just went along with him because I could do it. Um, and I studied Russian language and literature, and really loved um, Russian literature. I've read all of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy 
I mean, all of it. I mean, everything that they wrote in the original Turgenev, Gogol. I learned a lot about peasants. And um, then my husband was killed in a car crash a year after our child was born. And I went on teaching for a while. I got my first real appointment at Boston University. And I, I hated many things about academia, the hierarchy. Um, the president of Boston University at that time was a man named John Silber, who believed that philosophers should be king. And since he was a professor of philosophy, he thought he should be king of our university. And I really didn't want to be associated with that. And this, this latest thing of women speaking out about humiliating and uh, sexist things have been done to them. The senior professor in my little Russian section on our first interview to discuss what I would be teaching with him, he reached over and he pinched my cheek. So I got up and I walked out and I never went in his office again, but there was nothing I could do about that. So then you were probably really getting the itch to uh, move out in the country or how did that evolve? How did you get into the CSA uh, world and about what time, where, when about was that? Well, I, I taught, um, I moved to Boston in um, 19... 75 or 6, and I became friendly with a group of people who were talking about creating a university in the country where the students and teachers together would build a farm and build the houses, and then instruction would be free as part of this rural community. Unfortunately, most of them were students of um, Noam Chomsky at MIT, and extraordinarily super intellectual. And you, they didn't know which end of the cow you milked. I mean, literally, they didn't. And when I brought friends who were craftspeople, carpenters, or farmers to our gatherings, they would stagger out after one meeting and, and never want to go back because the level of intellectual discussion was so, so just, um, so, so very, very intellectual and, yeah. and un, unpractical. And those people never really did get their thing started because they wanted the entire judicial system to be set up before they even bought land. So they were haggling over clauses, you know, and bylaws and things uh, instead of learning how to grow food. So with some friends, I went looking for a farm in the country because I was really tired of Boston. And the final kickoff for me was there was some kind of chemical spill. This whole city was pervaded by the smell of this cancer-causing chemical, whatever it was. And my son by that time was in, um, I guess he was in first grade. And his school kind of panicked. And instead of sending them home on the school bus, they gave them each 
a quarter or something to take a, a, a public bus home. Well, my son had never taken a public bus. Luckily, he had a more savvy friend, so they did make it home. But I just lost confidence in that school system. And just, I wanted out of there. So we were able to find this broken down old farm in Gill, Massachusetts. It was actually half of a farm. Um, the farmer's wife had died. The dairy farmer himself had, was a bit addled and confused. And people talked about him delivering butter with hairs in it. <laughs> and he was still around, but he wasn't functioning very well. So another dairy farmer bought half of the land, and we bought a half of the land with a burned-down farmhouse and barn and started from scratch. And I had zero skills. I had done a little bit of gardening. And I had, by that time, I had already connected with the Northeast Organic Farming Association. So I'd been to some of the early 1970s conferences. And that's how I started to farm. So you found some mentoring on there to, to guide you? And yeah, I learned, I learned to farm by reading about French market gardening, yes. market farming and visiting France. And then by going to NOFA conferences and visiting other people's farms, working for other people. I couldn't do uh, uh, an apprenticeship because I don't think they existed at that time. And besides, I had a child, so it would have been difficult to do that. So I would hire myself out for a few days with who, whoever I wanted to learn from. I'd go work for free and people were happy to do that and I could learn things from them. And then um, in the Pioneer Valley area, there were a number of people who were starting to do organic farming. Um, Nancy Galland and Richard Stander, um, Wally and Juanita Nelson. And so we all formed a little study group and met once a month and read and learned about organic farming. We discovered, for example, I was in charge one month of reading about um, natural pesticides. And I discovered that rotenone was implicated in the onset of Parkinson's disease. So at that time, Rodel was saying, oh, it's wonderful, you can use it everywhere. And we decided that it shouldn't be used because it was actually a dangerous um, mixture, even though it was natural. And then we helped one another out. So on my farm, which we called Unadilla, after the stream that went through the farm, we built a solar greenhouse, which is a very nice greenhouse and worked quite well. Really? Um, I did starts for everybody. So Juanita Nelson, to reciprocate for my starting plants for her, paid me the first year in soap that she had made. <laughs> And the next year, I still had soap. I mean, it was like five years worth of wonderful soap. So she and Wally came and worked at my farm for a day. And we did things like forage together in restaurant basements for boxes to pack, pack our vegetables in. Wally and Juanita helped start 
the farmer's market in Greenfield, Massachusetts, and they were really leaders in um, tax resistance. They had a, a small garden, which was their only living at the Trap Rock Peace Center. And they were kind of the spiritual grandparents of most of us in that area, really wonderful people. Good. I'm glad you mentioned him. That's one thing I'm asking people to do, to mention people that mentored them who are right. that deserve a lot of credits for getting things going back then. Yeah, they just farmed on half an acre and lived on the proceeds of that because they wanted to, they didn't want to earn more money. They only wanted to earn enough to not have to pay taxes or deal with the tax man. Um, Juanita wrote a wonderful piece, um, a poem, um, The Outhouse Blues, which I you read could... read the poem, you sent it to me, it's very uh, good. And they considered my farm a really big farm. We had, altogether we had um, 69 acres, but there were only four acres of vegetables. And then, um, I became close friends with um, Benji and Jacques Lasso, who had imported Jacob sheep from uh, Scotland. So I exchanged some young sheep for plants that I had started, uh, chestnut trees. We were trying to get chestnuts that would grow. And they mentored me in taking care of those sheep. Um, so we had a small flock of sheep and we produced plants and sold them. And initially I tried every kind of marketing that I could find. I sold <clears throat> at the farmer's market. I sold to restaurants. I joined the Pioneer Valley Growers Association, which was a marketing cooperative. I was the only woman farmer and the only organic farmer in the group. And I took a lot of teasing. <laughs> oh, I had captain for breakfast. <clears throat> uh, but the farmers in that group who have survived at farmers as farmers have subsequently become organic. They have. Yes. So it's been interesting to watch their progress over the years. And they were kind of amazed that I was at my first commercial crop was leeks. Huh. that we managed to actually produce some very nice-looking leeks. Uh -huh. And there was a German woman, I don't recall her name, who was the their marketing manager. And she taught all of us, and me in particular, how to prepare things to sell to market, how to, how to pack, and what was acceptable, what size, things like that. And if you didn't have it the way she wanted it, you took it home. So you learned quickly under her rather strict tutelage. But she, she was the first woman to do marketing in the Boston um, public market. Uh, it was very much a, a men's game sure. at that time. But she was a she was a tough cookie. Wow. So then, uh, along the way, then one of the things you are you're known for is the consumer supported agriculture and uh, moving directly more into a CSA relationship, right? Uh, well, I didn't start doing that at the farm in Massachusetts because um, <clears throat> my partners there weren't interested in doing that. 
I was a friend of Robin Van Inn, and that's how I heard about CSA. But in 1988-89, I, I moved to New York State to Rose Valley Farm in Rose, New York, in Wayne County, um, joining as a partner David Stern. And he agreed to try and do a CSA because it was already quite obvious to us in Wayne County, New York, where we couldn't sell at the Ithaca Farmer's Market. There just weren't really good markets. And it was obvious that um, larger scale farms in California, organic farms, were going to be underselling us pretty quickly. So we needed a way to support the farm with people who would be like our, our steady supporters and join our club. And of course, in the winter of 1980-89, when we started our CSA, nobody had heard of the idea of paying in advance to get fresh vegetables from an organic farm. But in the city of Rochester, there was an organization called the Politics of Food, headed up by Alison Clark. And she got the idea right away. So she helped us find people to join. She already had a network of people in Rochester who realized the importance of locally grown food. And some of them even understood about organic food. So we had our first recruiting meetings at the near the food co-op in Rochester. And the people who signed up, I later came to learn, were all people who were either environmental or peace activists of different kinds, mm -hmm. people who were very aware of, of those issues. So our first season in 1989 was an experiment. And the idea was that everybody would come out to the farm, not all at once, but take turns coming out and helping with the harvesting, drive the food back into the city. And then in the city, the members would do distribution themselves without the farmers being present. Because the idea was they would share the risk with us and take on those parts of the work that they could do every bit as, as well as we could. So we figured out what jobs had to be done and members took jobs. And we had a very solid core group, which as the CSA expanded to, while I was at Rose Valley, I think we got up to 160. And the core group got to be over 20 people who committed to jobs like overseeing distribution, organizing all the people who oversaw distribution, because eventually there were um, eight or 10 of them. They took turns each, each um, distribution day, and we had two a week. Uh, the schedulers, um, there were two people who shared the job of being treasurer, so they collected all the money from the members and just sent us a check. We didn't have to chase anybody for money. Uh, someone put out the newsletter. One of the members <clears throat> convinced me, well, insisted that I had to learn how to use a computer and that the World Wide Web was going to be how we were going to advertise our farm. And I said, that's ridiculous. Why would you need the World Wide Web to ad advertise a local farm to local people. And of course, he was right. And he actually came out to the farm with a computer and taught me how to use it. So our partnership with those 
city people was a very close one, but they were organized as a buying club. It was a separate group that partnered with the farm, very much in the model of the Japanese Teike farms or the CSAs that were set up in New York City by Just Food. They would organize a core group of members who would partner with farmers. The, uh, I'm quite familiar with the CSA efforts in the, in the Midwest, Minnesota, and Iowa. One of the things that I'm hearing from people is that, uh, well, the CSA movement did so much, but that um, it's in some trouble nowadays uh, because of uh, all the organic food in, the, in Whole Foods and the other ways of getting, getting it, that some of the CSA farmers now are losing some of their customers coupled with the fact that there's more people trying to establish CSAs, more growers, and so it's, a, it's an issue nowadays. Well, I think the answer is to make the pie bigger, not to fight over the pie. <clears throat> um, and our CSA was one of the most participatory, and everybody did something. And so no one was, none of the members were paid for doing those jobs. And since my background was more as an organizer, I staffed that and recruited new members for the core group and made sure that things ran well. And I really <coughs> enjoyed doing that work. And it's clear then that the folks that you were working with, at least in the core, had a commitment that was deeper than just getting a box of vegetables. Right. Which I think is yeah, the people who joined the core group were people who had greater understanding. Some of them maybe not initially, but they came to really understand um, the importance of organic and locally grown food and supporting local farms and what that meant to the local economy and what that meant to the future of this world mm -hmm. to have organic farms in existence. And small scale farms have had a struggle in this country at least for a century. We've right. been losing farms in my lifetime. This country has lost five million farms. And I went into farming knowing about that history. And that's why I think CSA appealed to me because it was a way of getting a fair deal for the farmer and for the farmer not having to bear the entire burden of struggling against a system that was, was really stacked against you. So the members of my core group, um, when they, we started sharing our farm budget with them. And when they realized how little my partner and I were earning, they took the lead in saying, we have to raise our share price, pay them more, so that this budget will include health insurance and uh, a retirement fund for our farmers. Oh, good. Well, that's, a, that's something that could, should still be done all over the place, obviously. Well, it, as I said, I was a friend of Robin Van Inn, <clears throat> and she had written a very little book. It's not just about vegetables. Mm. And everybody was on her. Robin, you have to write a book about CSA, how to do CSA, all the people you visited and talked to and the examples. And <clears throat> Robin just wasn't doing it and wasn't it. So I offered to help her because I like to write. And we started working on the book together. We wrote an outline and then six months later, we met up again and I had written the first couple chapters and Robin hadn't written anything. 
So I said, well, I'll, I'll take another chapter. And then we met six months later and I'd written my chapter and she still hadn't written anything. So then we had a heart to heart talk and I learned from her that she was working three part-time jobs and she was just too distracted to sit down and write. So I, at that time, was a member of the Administrative Council of Northeast SARE, the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program. And I pitched to them the idea of them providing a, a stipend for Robin so that she could just write the book. So SARE put up $10,000 towards Sharing Harvest, the book that we were working on. And that went to Robin, who then still was not able to, she finally got started and then she died of asthma. She owed money to the hospital and the um, ambulance corps there. And so when she had an asthma attack, a friend came to try and help her go to the hospital and the key froze in the lock. It was January, and by the time they futzed around and got the car started, Robin was gone. Oh, no. um, so um, I took over the book and dedicated it to her, and whatever funds we got initially went to her son to help support him. And I read about the book, and I'd like to have you mention the exact title so we can... On the, record. the title is Sharing the Harvest, A Citizen's Guide to Community-Supported Agriculture. And it has now been translated into first Japanese. I went to an IFOM conference. IFOM is the International Federation of Organic Agriculture Movements. Mm-hmm. I think it was, the, well, it was the second one that I went to, and it was in Canada. And I suddenly found myself surrounded by these Japanese people and I didn't really quite understand what was going on. And it turned out they were um, members of the Japanese Organic Agriculture Association. And they wanted to tell me that they wanted to translate my book into Japanese and have me come to Japan and do a tour of Teike farms because they were having trouble recruiting people in the younger generation. And they saw that in the United States, most of the members were young families and they thought maybe I had some ideas that I could share with them. So I actually did that. It was quite an amazing experience. They also thought, though, that I was president of the United States National CSA organization and set up a special meeting of their board of the Japanese Organic Agriculture Association where they were going to report to me about their work and they expected me to tell them about my organization and I had the embarrassing job of saying well actually we don't have one and I'm not the president. (laughs) Um, But then from the Japanese people in Taiwan got wind of it and translated into mainland Chinese, to, into um, classical Chinese. And then when Xi'an Sina came to the United States and learned about um, CSA in Minnesota um, and took CSA back to China, she translated the book into mainland Chinese. Um, and the, the book has sold more copies in China 
The first edition of 10,000 sold out really quickly. Wow. She started the first CSA in 2008. There are now over a thousand. In China, it's spreading very quickly. Wow. It's a grassroots organic movement in China that we know very little about here. And it's quite different from the top-down certified organic government controlled um, organic that's going on there. Ah, well, that's a wonderful legacy you have there. Uh, and then it was translated into Thai, and then most recently into Spanish. It's Compartiendo la Cosecha. Ah, wonderful, wonderful. That's got to feel really good to see that happening like that. That's so good. I, w I got to interview Garth Youngberg about the report on report and recommendations on organic farming that, that he and others wrote in, uh, it would have been in 1979, I think it's, or 1980 it came out, right before Reagan came right. in and Reagan's administration tried to suppress it. But he told me that ultimately was translated into seven languages, that report too. So there is a hunger around the planet for this kind, mm. of, kind of information. You know, from writing about my own CSA experience, in which I do highly pitch the idea of gathering a core group around you. Mm -hmm. And many farmers are resistant to that. Yes. They don't want to share control or have no idea of how to organize a group of supporters. So I think it's really missing an opportunity. Um, and that core group still exists to this day although some sad things have happened with the farm. I mean, eventually what happened with, I moved from Rose Valley Farm because my partner and I didn't agree on many things. And I think one of the things was he really didn't want all those people coming to the farm for the CSA. So I started over again and renamed the farm Peace Fork on land that initially I, my partner, Greg Palmer, who'd been an intern at Rose Valley and came and became my partner at Peacework, um, we leased land from Doug Cry and Becky Cry. And Doug was one of the founding members of NOFA in New York State. And he had a herd of buffalo. This big, strong, strapping guy, um, a wonderful conservationist, not much of a businessman. Um, but he, after five years there, he passed away of a geoblastoma. It's the same kind of cancer that McCain has. <clears throat> it's can be, well, in Doug's case, he went from appearing to be healthy. 40 days later, he was gone. So Becky offered to sell the farm to us. Um, but a couple of the members of our core group were also on the board of the Genesee Land Trust. So we all worked together with the Land Trust and worked out a deal where um, a woman named Suzanne Wheatcraft, who was on both, both groups, led a fundraising campaign, which we called Preserving Peacework, where we raised enough money, mainly from the members of the CSA, to purchase the farm for the land trust. And then the land trust leases it back to the farm business. So I worked closely with Gay Mills, who's the executive director of the Genesee Land Trust in developing a lease, which is partly based on land trust leases, but partly based on community 
land trust language so that the farm remains affordable for the next farmers and it can't be um, sold as real estate. It remains as farmland in perpetuity, but the people who lease it have to make at least 50% of their living as uh, ecological farmers on that land. Good. Well, that was another area then that's been really important as far as getting that spread around to those those kind of leases and land trust relationships mm -hmm. for working lands, not just for lands that we've set aside to for uh, you know ecological reasons, but working farmlands being protected by things. Yeah. I mean that made it really possible for my partners and I to buy that land or we didn't buy it to to use that land. Because right, right. our the money that we had for starting piecework just came from the insurance money that I had gotten from the car crash in which my husband was killed, that was, that was my capital. Uh, uh, interesting. And I laundered it by putting it in soil. Well, yeah. good. Well, you, this has been so fascinating and I, I, I would like to move on a little bit over into the policy realm more directly, all of this good grassroots work. You mentioned 1989. I know you became involved then on what became the Organic Food Production Act in Washington, D.C. to actually, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about that and what uh, what that was like going to Washington and working on that. Well, I was a founding member of NOFA in Massachusetts and NOFA is seven chapters and they have an interstate council which meets um, about six times a year. Mm -hmm. uh, and in 88, 89, the Interstate Council decided to send a representative to the first meeting that was held nationally of organic farmers, which became the Organic Farmers, the, um, the Organic, OFAC, the Organic Farmers Association Council. Yeah. So I was NOFA's representative to that first meeting in Leavenworth, Kansas. And it was at that meeting that Kathleen Merrigan presented the first draft of what became the Organic Food Production Act. And in her first draft, the entire responsibility for certification was put in the hands of state departments of agriculture. There were good programs in Texas and Oregon, but in most states, that was just not a reasonable thing to do. In New York State, the Commissioner of Ag and Markets at that time was going around saying that organic was a fake. Mm -hmm. You can't tell the difference between organic food and conventional food. And our board actually had a meeting with him where we got him to agree to stop defaming organic. Mm -hmm. But Ag and Markets still refused to put their seal of New York quality on a bag that had a certified organic label on it. My farm applied for that seal for our carrots, which were beautiful, and they, they refused to let us have it. So I knew that a Department of Agriculture like that was not an appropriate um, apparatus for doing organic certification. So as one of the people who became the leadership of OFAC, I got sucked into really working on the Organic Food Production Act. 
And that was a, a really hard and nerve-wracking experience because the OFAC leadership, we had representatives from CCOF and MAFCA and the NOFAs, the people who are most active, Washington Tilth, um, uh, Ann Schwartz, yes. um, UGA, people were active, the um, Ozark Organic Growers. None of us had ever worked on legislation in Washington, D.C. We didn't know how things worked, how to go about it, anything. And we had these endless conference calls that summer. Calls would go on for over three hours working through the language of the Organic Foods Production Act, trying to develop our positions on what we wanted in that act. And Lynn Cooty was one of the people in, uh, involved with OFAC. And she came up with a language that is in the bill that um, is used to decide which materials can be used in organic, the criteria by which materials are judged. And that was really our major contribution to that piece of legislation, lobbying for that. And it actually took another decade before it was actually put into law too, right? Right. And Tom Forster was our representative oh, yes. in Washington, D.C. And he also had had no experience in Washington, D.C. Kathy Osier mm -hmm. took him under her wing. And then um, I guess, I don't think... Uh, NSAC was not in existence then, so was it was really Kathy Ozer who helped him. Okay. So we were babes in the woods and made a lot of mistakes. And Michael Sly came in there somewhere too, didn't he? Because he was involved, I think. Yes, he did. Well, I got to know Michael, not in 89, but a little bit later. Yes. Roger Blobaum had I organized those I interviewed Roger. meetings in Washington, trying to pull together people from sustainable agriculture. And then um, when OFAC just didn't have the resources to continue, we took our last bit of money and pulled them with a national dialogue for sustainable agriculture, which then became the national campaign for right. sustainable agriculture. And it was at those national campaign meetings in Washington that I met Michael because one of the committees that we would have meet at those gatherings was the organic committee. Mm -hmm. And Michael and I became the chairs of that committee. So it was in that capacity that I worked on the legislation. Mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately the struggle, like I interviewed uh, Joyce Ford and Jim Riddle and the efforts that uh, they, they got involved in coming up from Minnesota and trying to Make sure that the materials, the whole struggle on what could be, what could be included in organic, that's mm. what still exists today, goes on. And mm. that, that was a big part of the, the whole effort, as I recall. But when the um, regulations did finally come out, Michael and I and <clears throat> the farm worker representatives, people from Kata, Nelson Carrasquillo, um, who were part of the National Campaign for Sustainable Agriculture, noticed that it said nothing about the people in organic agriculture, nothing about fair prices for farmers or 
fair working conditions for the people who work on organic farms. And although that wasn't very highly developed internationally, it was definitely part of what organic agriculture meant and was about. And it, it was supposed to promote the well-being of all of the people who participated in the agriculture as well as the earth. Justice for human beings as well as earthworms. Yes. So when we sent in comments to USDA about that, we got the answer, this is not in our purview. And it was then that Michael and, well, representing Nelson, Richard Mandelbaum from Kata and Marty Mesh from Florida Organic Growers, we started meeting back in 1997, I think we might have had our first confab, to talk about how are we going to keep fairness in organic agriculture? And those conversations led to the development of the Agricultural Justice Project and Food Justice Certification Standards for fairness on farms and throughout the food chain from farm to table. And that work is still going on. That work is still going on, and it's very much an uphill yeah. um, struggle because though there is much broader recognition amongst the buying public for the importance of organic. There's very little recognition for the struggles of the people who do all the work for that food and how underpaid both farmers are and as a result, the people who work on their farms. That this country has cheap food, yeah. and the people who pay for that are the people who do the work in the food system. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Is, the, is there a label now that you're satisfied with that could be accompanying like what USD Organic with another label, or how's that going? Well, we have a food justice certified label, which is very handsome. Yeah. Um, I don't have a picture of it with me. It would be nice to show you that. Yeah. But we see it initially, at least, as an add-on to organic. Because yeah. we've helped convene a couple of meetings of farm worker organizations from across the United States to talk about what fair trade would mean to them. And one the top things on their their list is freedom from um, poisonous materials. So from the farm worker perspective, organic is really important because they're not exposed to toxic pesticides and herbicides. Mm -hmm. I know we see it in our uh, co-op in Minnesota, particularly on coffee, some of the things like bananas, things like that. So well, that fair trade, that international fair trade label, there are any number of them. And unfortunately, internationally, there is not agreement on what fair means. Yeah, I bet. So some of those labels, like equal exchange, mean that there's really an effort been made for fairness all the way back to the people who do the work and transparency throughout that food chain. Mm -hmm. But some of the other fair trade labels only mean that the farmer is getting a slightly better price than the conventional price in the international market and has nothing to say about the people who might be working on that farm. 
Transfair USA or Fairtrade USA has finally got standards for um, the workers on the Fairtrade farms, but it's it's taken a lot of pressure on them to get them to really pay attention how to do that properly. And I still I think they still do their interviews of farm workers as a group. In our food justice certification, the audit is done by a certifier, but also by a trained representative of a farm worker organization who interviews the workers separately from management and one by one in confidence in their native language. Wow. And that's the way you get the real story. Yes, yes. If you have a room full of people, they're not going to be able to tell you about abuses that have occurred. No. Huh. Well, I'm really glad our conversation went to that direction because I know that it kind of moves to my uh, area I like to kind of wrap things up with is, you know, what do we do now? And that's clearly one of the areas of, that has to continue to work on. And the, the work of you and our videographer, Shelley, and Marty, it's very important with the videos that are being produced in this whole area. I think of this area of justice as one that's just, with organics having, getting broader understanding and acceptance, this is an area that has to be pursued. There are organic farmers who are making a decent living, a few, but most of the organic farmers I know, just like the family scale conventional farmers, are making a living because someone in their family works off the farm mm -hmm. or they farm part-time. Yeah. The, the health insurance come from, you know, yeah. somebody's job as a nurse or a teacher. Um, yeah. I don't think people in the general public understand what a struggle it is to be a farmer in this country. And it's not that those of us who are farming want to make a lot of money. We would just like to have a living wage and get enough from the sale of our products to pay living wages to the people who work on our farms. And that's what food justice certification is about. It's changing the whole paradigm so that the work is respected and properly remunerated. We can't talk about a sustainable agriculture if it isn't worth sustaining. An agriculture based on slave labor even if it's using organic methods, isn't worth sustaining. That's right. So that, that's the work that needs to be done. And I think um, we need to find a way of reigniting the conversation around parity payments to farmers and find a way to have a system of payments that doesn't come from government subsidies, but where the government supports having prices that fully cover the costs of production and some kind of supply management so that we have the amount produced in this country of food that people need so that the prices are high enough that everybody who works in the food chain is making a, a decent living at it. And that has to go all the way, you know, all the way to the supermarket and the restaurant tables too. Yes. Well, I just had the opportunity to interview Wendell Berry and his daughter, Mary, who's now doing more and more of the work with, 
with Wendell Berry at the, at the Berry Center. And you just spoke exactly what he and Mary were largely talking about, hmm. how the you know, tobacco program was sort of the last vestige, or one of them anyway, of the parity program. And uh, to, that tobacco aside, the principles of, of parity that were around that small scale mm -hmm. agriculture, as Wendell's written about repeatedly, and also calls for the same sort of thing today. We have to figure out some way to do that. So, good company there. Well, I'm, I often think of something, and then I find that Wendell has said it better than I <laughs> than I could have. That's true for all of us. I think <laughs> that's very good. Well, I promised you we would wrap. You know, spend an hour or so talking so you've got other meetings and things to deal with today. But was there anything else that you can think of that you really wanted to make sure we got on the record? with this? Well, I didn't talk very much about NOFA, the Northeast Organic Farming Association. Um, I've been involved with NOFA since the 70s. And it truly is a grassroots organization mm -hmm. since at least half of its members are farmers or homesteaders. We always have a struggle having enough money to keep it going. Uh, we're not a bunch of well-heeled foodies. Yeah. Um, but NOFA and the other farming associations like it have been the ones that have spread the know-how of how to do organic farming and gardening through this country and often not acknowledged. But since the 70s, we've been having annual conferences where farmers share what they've discovered with one another and farm tours and workshops through the year, farmer to farmer and gardener to gardener. Um, that's been the other part of the work that I've tried to contribute to through you know, both practical things that I've learned about growing vegetables and the CSA organization as a way that farms if they organize it well, can actually make a decent living and have some support. Yeah, and you, you were part of that now, going back almost like three decades or something, right? You're still part of it, right? Right, I'm still on the board of NOFA. Oh, are you? And I've been on and off, you know, oh, yeah. there are term limits, so sure. I, I do the, my term limit and then I cycle back on again after a year or two. And then I've also become the honorary president of Urgency, which is the International CSA Network, which ha is really picking up steam. Um, Urgency, together with iPhone, uh, have been able to convince the Food and Agriculture Organization that organic and family scale organic farms all over the world are where you need to put your investments mm -hmm. if you really want to solve world hunger mm -hmm. and poverty. Good. So lately, Urgency has, has an MOU with the Food and Agriculture Organization to help spread the word about CSA and direct sales, short circuit is what they call it in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, in the receiving countries, so that means Eastern Europe, Africa, Asia. So some very exciting work of that kind is going on. Yeah. And I've been able to help it a little bit anyway. Yeah, it's wonderful that I know Michael, I'm looking at Michael uh, Sly's resume as well, growing uh, understanding or importance of the, the, of the work of you too as the other countries and how they 
way it's spread internationally and what you can bring to that, that effort as well. Well, some of it, you know, Michael says doing agricultural policy work is like watching a car rust. <laughs> some of it proceeds very slowly. Um, but it's, it's important to keep these messages alive and the hope that truth and justice will win out right. eventually. That's right. That's faith that keeps And it's better to going. die struggling for that than to either fall into despair or sell out. Well, I think we can, we can end with that. That's a wonderful way to end. Thank you very much for this. Really appreciate it. And for all the work you've done and continue to do. Please keep it up. Well, as long as I can, I will. Thank you. This has been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron Cruz, available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs.